Hello everyone and welcome back to the AirPod from the confines of my home, still in lockdown. I'm of course your host, Omid Scobie, joined by the lovely Maggie Rooley. How are you doing? Hello, hello, Omid. I know, you know, we had that brief teaser. We got to go out in the field together and, and do some, you know, take the podcast on the road. And now we're all back in lockdown, unfortunately. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, we're still doing the podcast every week. Lockdown can't stop us. It can't stop us, especially when there is so much to get through. It's been another busy week. And I'm always surprised when I say that because I think seven <laughs> days goes by and you think, how much could actually happen when no one can yeah, get Yeah, what do we anywhere? have to talk about even? <laughs> It is a pretty packed lineup. Shortly, we'll be talking about the Queen and Prince Philip's unexpected news about their vaccinations. Of course, if you listened to last week's show, you'll know why that was unexpected. And um, we've also have word on the Cambridge Royal Train Tour still ruffling feathers in certain parts of the world. We'll be getting into details on that. Plus, reports suggest that the Sussexes have quit social media for good. But is that actually? true and of course the biggest news of the week was prince charles's launch of the terra carter initiative that might sound like gobbledygook to you just now (laughs) but we'll be breaking down exactly what it means and just the impact that it will have not just on the uk but the entire world when it comes to global conservation but but before we get to that maggie i need to know how you're doing that you asked that with such sincerity, Omid. I really feel like you're asking me how I'm doing, which I have to say in this day and age, I think everyone is probably in a similar boat. It's like, how am I doing? I think I'm okay, but I also haven't left my flat in a month and a half or seen anyone except for, you know, the occasional delivery person. <laughs> am I doing okay? I don't know, Omid. <laughs> no, I would say I feel very lucky. All things considered, I am doing great. You know, um, healthy, uh, we're still working at ABC, you know, we have our jobs. I sometimes go in the field still, although we're taking a lot more precautions right now with the elevated numbers. So things are good. What about you, Omid? Yeah, you know, I think grateful and thankful for for what I do have rather than what I don't yeah. have at the moment. It is sometimes very easy to focus on what we're missing out on or what or what the month could have been. It's mm-hmm. certainly not the start to 2021 that I was getting revved up yeah. about a few months ago <laughs> thinking it might be the start of a new chapter but that's all right I I think as we said in the last episode this is like the 13th month of 2020 <laughs> I'm willing <laughs> to have my new year celebration out. at a later date <laughs> <laughs> well I think you make such a good point of thinking about all the things that you can do right now instead of focusing on all the things that we can't do and in some ways you know it's really eye-opening to remember all the things that we can do you know if you're lucky enough to be with a loved one right now that's extra time to spend with a spouse or parents or kids that you, know, you wouldn't have had otherwise and uh, I know we've talked about this in the past but picking up new hobbies you know I've talked a lot about how much reading I've been doing all the puzzling I've been doing and now you know Omid, as I shared with you earlier I'm trying to find two-person board games that me and my husband can just play since we're by ourselves so you know things are getting really crazy in my household but um, you know it is, it is a new challenge one I don't think we all any of us thought that we'd have but you know one that hopefully you can embrace and uh, find some positives in all the negatives. Exactly well I imagine it's no doubt a very similar vibe at Windsor Castle where of course the Queen and Prince Philip have been spending the lockdown in, in England together at their home. This is of course after deciding to also have a quiet Christmas at Mm -hmm. their residence too. So this has really been a time where the two of them have been together, but we've had big news 
as a Buckingham Palace, or should I say Windsor Castle, this week. Uh, just after we finished recording the last episode, Buckingham Palace announced the news that both the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh have received their first COVID-19 vaccinations. Uh, they said that they were administered, I think it was just a day after our episode came out, uh, was by a household doctor at Windsor Castle. The palace didn't go into any other details about uh, which type of vaccination it was or when they'll be getting their second ones. In fact, they've made it very clear that they're not going to be sharing when they get the second ones administered. But they did add that the Queen decided to let it be known that she had had the vaccination to prevent any further speculation about whether she would or whether she, she wouldn't. And Maggie, you know, you and I spoke at length last episode about the palace's uh, earlier decision to not share this news. Uh, Buckingham mm -hmm. Palace uh, t were telling all members of the press that it was highly unlikely, virtually impossible, that we would ever know whether the Queen had had her vaccination because it breached, it would have been a breach of royal protocol to share private medical matters. And I think this really speaks to how seriously the Queen is sort of taking the pandemic as a monarch. I think there's a real thought that's gone in there that by sharing this news, they're also perhaps making others feel less worried about it, removing some of the stigma or concerns or conspiracy theories surrounding the vaccinations. And I would imagine that that's done a great deal of good as opposed to keeping it to oneself. Yeah, 100%. And I think what's so interesting is, you know, when we look at the royal family and the royal households here in the UK, tradition is always this thing that they stand by. And um, anyone who's, you know, been binging the crown under lockdown like myself sort of sees that for decades the Queen has stood by tradition and of, you know, often choosing silence as a way to sort of get through and get by and uh, remain a monarchy in power by sort of being the steadfast source, right, of tradition. Uh, so to to break tradition right now, and maybe even it seems like a small way to break tradition, just talking about getting a vaccine, but when you see how important that is, it's actually a really big deal. And again, like you say, it shows what a big deal our country and the world is in, that the queen felt it was necessary to, to go against tradition, to speak out, again, something she really never does, and make something like her medical history known. Um, clearly, it's so important and, and, and something that the country needs to hear right now that, that, that she thought it was important to do that. Mm -hmm. People, of course, in the UK over the age of 80 are amongst that high priority group mm -hmm. to be given the vaccine first. I think there might have been some feelings amongst some that the Queen could have secretly had hers long before everyone else. Of course, these vaccinations started back in almost, I guess, mm -hmm. mid-December. We're now uh, in mid-January and it was only a week ago that she had hers. So actually, she comes later on than some uh, who, who are of around the same age as her in this country. And I, I would imagine that was another reason why they'd want to share this, to perhaps put an end to any kind of thoughts that their royal family might be getting sort of preferential treatments uh, compared to others. That's a good point. And it, it sort of uh, sometimes you forget when you're facing uh, such a global problem, but people like the royal family and you know, other celebrities are obviously under so much scrutiny. So every choice they make, they have to be very careful, you know, not only the choices that they make, but also how it is perceived by the public. And while I think, you know, on one hand, the queen getting the vaccine could maybe, you know, help quell some fears of people that are afraid to get the vaccine for various reasons and show people that this isn't not only important, but also a 
healthy thing to do and a safe thing to do. But then on the flip side, you know, you want to make sure it doesn't seem like she's also cutting the line, right? So uh, it is a really delicate balance. But I think ultimately it seems like, you know, she she went with the protocol of the National Health Service and she went when she was supposed to go and she's been vocal about it. And, you know, hopefully this will you know, um, help other people realize that they can get the vaccine, whether they're, you know, um, in their 80s, 90s, even almost 100, right? That uh, it's important to get it, it's safe to get it. And, you know, someone like the queen getting it, hopefully it sort of normalizes going out there to get this vaccine. Because we need, you know, as we keep saying, we need the vast, vast majority of people to get it for it actually to work. Mm. It'll be interesting to see when and how we receive the news that Prince Charles and Camilla, mm-hmm. the Duchess of Cornwall, get their vaccines. I think there had been some speculation earlier on that perhaps Prince Charles might not need vaccine but uh, as we've seen in the news this week uh, talk about sort of immunity to the virus Mm -hmm. if you've suffered from it already uh, isn't actually guaranteed so of course in the UK people are still being encouraged to get that vaccination and again I think he could be a great spokesperson for those who have had the virus and the importance of still getting that vaccination. He should be getting it soon, too. I mean, I know the, the UK, it's a little bit up in the air, but he's in the, sort of the next round of the over 70s that they're pushing to get. And the prime minister here has been very vocal trying to get all the over 70s and people who are vulnerable or healthcare workers vaccinated first and fastest. And, you know, at one point he was promising this was going to happen by mid-February. Now, you know, there's some debate on if that's actually going according to plan. But uh, either way, he should be very soon in line to get the vaccine. Mm. Well, especially as uh, clinics and uh, venues across the UK start working towards an almost 24 hour a day rollout of this vaccine. There are many people involved trying to make this happen. And of course, the royal family, as we know, have been the first often to give sort of major thanks to frontline workers and those really at the heart of the pandemic for the past 10 months or so, including, of course, the Cambridges, who very famously travelled the UK in December last year to thank frontline workers across the country. Uh, It was a tour that was planned with good intentions and certainly in England was incredibly well Mm. received. But in Scotland and in Wales, where they had much tougher travel restrictions in place at the time that they still do, it was a much more of a mixed crowd of uh, feelings about the uh, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's arrival into those countries at the time. And we've had news this week that emails uh, released by the Scottish government or available through the Scottish government through the Freedom of Information Act have revealed that aides working for the royal couple actually ignored requests to postpone travel during the nationwide restrictions. Of course, this was a three-day trip. It covered, I think, 1,250 miles across the country Um, and at the time we saw that criticism from politicians um, in Wales and Scotland Uh, but these emails do show that the concerns were raised as far back as November. Uh, One email sent by an aide for Scotland's first minister Nicola Sturgeon on November the 12th shows uh, uses the word anxiety about the trip and says that in their view at that particular moment in time the chance of the tour having to be postponed due to those restrictions were particularly high. Uh, A week later in an email that was uh, first obtained by the national newspaper in Scotland the head of cabinet parliament and governance in Scotland also sent an email to the palace warning the couple that Scotland's nationwide travel ban would affect plans for the tour. In fact 
they seem to think that perhaps this would officially see an end to the couple's plans coming to Scotland and even write in the email, this is obviously news that would have a major impact on the plans you're working on, I am afraid. Now, of course, despite those warnings, the tour went ahead on December the 6th and much has been said about that decision this week. Kensington Palace are keeping extremely quiet on the matter. In fact, in a a statement to ABC News, they say that the same guidance they gave in December before the tour still stands. And that guidance, of course, they're referring to was that the Duke and Duchess were travelling for work purposes and all rules were fully adhered to. The trip was planned in consultation with the UK, Scottish and Welsh governments. But Maggie, it may have been in consultation, but not a word there about whether that consultation was for or against the trip going ahead. Yeah, that's the sticking point, right? I know we spoke a lot about this when the tour first happened, and you know there were kind of rumors flying that members of the Scottish government, as well as the Welsh government, weren't necessarily overly thrilled uh, when they welcomed William and Kate. Uh, but you, don't, you never know quite what's true. Uh, I think to see it written in emails like this is fairly stark. And to see the fact that they were sort of warned against coming is also something to pay attention to. But I do think it's interesting in the emails, you know, from the, uh, the, the aide of the British Prime Minister and he wrote to the palace, he also is delicate and, you know, he doesn't come out forcefully saying, do not come. He sort of says, while the tour would mean a lot to us, here, we're anxious about getting it done. And I think, you know, when dealing with the palace, it must be difficult because at the end of the day, you're you're talking to, to the royal family, right? So I'm sure a lot of people try to couch what they're saying in a way that says, listen, no, 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 we would love to have you come, but we're anxious about this. And, you know, I, I think that when you read through the emails, he couches it, but he then makes it very clear that it would be nearly impossible for them to make this trip under the current guidelines. So then, you know, you do have to ask the question, did we miss something? How were they able to make this trip under the current guidelines? You know, members of parliament have been fairly outspoken um, after the these emails came out, um, calling out the palace for still going on this trip. But I, I'm curious going forward what it will mean for, you know, not only William and Kate, but all royals as we try to navigate sort of this unlocking of the country. You know, there are going to be royal tours in the future. Um, how are they going to approach it? Are they going to be extra cautious? Are they going to proceed as normal? How are they going to pick what countries they're going to go to? You know, and I hope this is kind of a learning lesson on how to navigate as best as we can working during these difficult times and traveling during these difficult times and dealing with the different governments during these difficult times. I mean, they definitely had their work cut out for them. It was a challenge obviously did not go all according to plan. So hopefully we can kind of learn from the lesson and move forward. Mm, I'm sure lessons have been learned. And it is worth pointing out that at the time and the restrictions that are still in place have did only permit essential travel. But when you look into what the rules are when it comes to essential travel, that does include volunteer work, it includes charity work, and of course those who have to be based physically somewhere rather than working from home. So really when you break that down, the Cambridges didn't do anything wrong, and I think it's worth noting that alongside this reporting. But at the same time, this is a family that is all about the optics, and I think here the optics just didn't quite hit the right note. And that is such a shame because I think that the concept itself, a royal train tour across the country, thanking those at the heart of the pandemic, I mean, that really is your kind of prime royal engagement. And had that have happened, 
some months later, perhaps when majority of the country have received their vaccinations and we've gotten over the second wave, which we're still very much in the middle of, I think it would have been received very, very differently. Yeah, I, I hope that, like you say, lessons have been learned from this and that as we move forward and more trips are planned that, again, like you say, there, there's so much positive that comes out of these trips. And, you know, we've both been on them. You've been on them for, for many years. And you see the people that they meet on the ground. It really does have an impact. People and the communities that they visit just thrive when they're there. And they're so happy and excited. It's such a morale boost. And, I mean, isn't that what we need right now? <laughs> Gosh, I think we could all use a major morale boost. So I do think these tours are going to be really important going forward. And, you know, again, hopefully lessons have been learned and the next one won't kind of have these rumors swirling and can, it can be a little smoother. Yeah, it's interesting to see that the royal family have almost fully moved back to virtual engagements again. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Kensington Palace released details of a call by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge speaking to frontline workers and counsellors about bereavement support throughout the pandemic. Um, and this was for uh, Hospice UK's Just Be service. And I think this move back to virtual engagements, whilst may have been done somewhat reluctantly, because we know that the Cambridges were very keen to be out there, I think for the time being, I think it's clear that that's what will work for best Mm. for the foreseeable future. Gosh, I'm just, aren't we all ready for that foreseeable future, for the for the future where we have royal en- engagements out in public again? Mm. Oh, man, when's it going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. And, and speaking of guesses, uh, a report this week about the Su- Duke and Duchess of Sussex's future on social media came out in the <laughs> Sunday Times, uh, claiming that the couple have quit all social media platforms for good and refusing to use services such as Twitter or Facebook to promote their activities. Um, The move was said to be prompted by the couple's disgust at the hatred and abuse directed at them on social media over the years, particularly against Meghan. Um, But it says that whilst they are busy setting up their new Archwell Foundation, they won't be using social media to promote any of their activities or initiatives. Now, this all sounds pretty much what one would expect. I don't think the couple have been ever been that active on social media apart from their Sussex Royal Instagram account, which I guess is my first point. We have never seen them on Twitter or Facebook, so I wouldn't <laughs> expect them to be signing up for that. Um, that said, I did check in with a spokesperson for the Sussexes who simply branded the news as speculation. Uh, They suggest that nothing's really changed and that the couple are just continuing to bring attention to improving the digital world in a more compassionate and trustworthy way. So I I guess this begs the question, does it really come as a surprise that the Sussexes aren't back on social media yet? Well, it's sort of funny. When you you said that, I had to pause and take a moment. I was like, oh, you're... You're right. I mean, they just they haven't been on it for a while and they never were on a lot of social platforms. I guess I just didn't quite notice it till it was pointed out. But in in a way, you know, Sussex Royal obviously had a large presence on Instagram, but that that was sort of it. And I think for a lot of people, 
you know, when when uh, Sussex Royal had to be shut down and Harry and Meghan had to leave that that platform, they sort of issued that goodbye, saying thank you to people that had followed them, saying stay with us, we'll have a way to communicate with you again soon. And you know, perhaps we assumed, I, I know I did, they'd be back on Instagram under a different handle, under a different name, but they never actually said that, right? They just said, well, we'll find a way to communicate with you. And when you look at what they've done, they, they really have found new ways to communicate. I mean, they have their new podcast where we get to hear directly from them. They have their new Netflix deal where they'll be producing shows that are, in a way, them communicating with us, talking about what issues are most important to them and getting those shows greenlit. So I'd be curious if, you know, their way of communicating going forward is almost different, right? Grander on the scale. It's not only social media, but it's actually sort of these bigger deals. And it'll be it'll be also interesting to see, you know, as, as you heard from their spokesperson, how they're sort of rethinking the digital world. You know, we've seen so much from both of them in the past about um, just you know, how the, the, the digital world can be a dangerous and scary place. You know, we had Megan speaking out about how much she was trolled and harassed online. We have Harry calling the digital landscape unwell. They have been very vocal in, you know, their evolution away from social media and from the digital world. So, again, I guess it's not a total surprise to see them not embracing it as they start this new future together. Mm, and as you say, they're certainly not short of platforms, including this very one that you and I are speaking on. I think podcasting... <laughs> will certainly be a place where we do hear a lot from them through their own voices. If you look back at the uh, Archwell holiday special that they launched just after Christmas, that in itself gave us enough of an insight into their life and the work that they're doing to really, I guess, suffice and and not require social media. And, And as Harry said, I think he wrote for Fast Company magazine, he said that social media stoked and created a crisis of hate, a crisis of health, in a crisis of truth. And I would imagine until they fixed some of that, uh, it probably wouldn't make much sense for them to be on it. That said, there are a number of alternatives. I've actually been having a bit of fun on a new app this week called Clubhouse, which is sort of an audio-only social media platform uh, where you can follow people, mainly within sort of the tech and entertainment industries, um, to not only network, but also to hop into audio conversations. And so they're uh, running sort of discussions at different times of the day, and it's very positive, and it's a completely different atmosphere to anything else I've experienced. Uh, So if you are part of that, and I believe, I think it was uh, Forbes magazine said it is the hottest new social media platform Really? You're being so cutting. Check edge. it out. I am uh, at Scoby <laughs> on there, and I'd be I'd love to hear from any of you that are using it. Very cool. Well, I think you make an interesting point. You know what the future is and what people want to see, and you know I, I think that really everyone you've seen such this push towards. Um, obviously, you know, there was that big documentary that, that came out over the summer that so many people were watching. And then, you know, you have sort of what we're witnessing right now in America and, um, you know, with the president of the United States getting kicked off of Twitter. I mean, this is major digital news that's coming out just this week. And I think a lot of people are kind of having a reckoning with their social media lives. It's not just, you know, whatever, Harry and Meghan. It's it's the world. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, I'd be curious to hear more from Meghan someday because, digital media and social media used to be a big part of her life. You know, she had the TIG, her 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 sort of her personal brand and website about her lifestyle website that was a big part of her life before Harry. So she definitely used to have a media presence. Uh, and now to you know, vocally sort of talk about 
trolling online and the fact that it, there's a dark side to it as well and that you know clearly she's very quiet on social media that we know if she doesn't have any public accounts you know, that's a pretty big evolution and it's one I think a lot of people are dealing with what do I do with my social media accounts are they healthy for me how much time should I be spending on them uh, I think there's a much bigger conversation that we all should be having and perhaps one that she could even lead or you know take more of a leadership role in going forward mm. Absolutely. I mean, in answer to the question of how much time, too much at the moment. <laughs> yeah. It scares me when my uh, weekly report pops I up know, on my I know. Don't iPhone. look at the weekly report. <laughs> I always say I use my phone so much for work and I also like, read a lot of news articles. I even write scripts on it sometimes. So I get that report and I'm like, oh, but it's all real work stuff. Don't pay attention to the apps that say I use them the most. It's I was using it to write a script, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, TikTok is essential. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right, well, coming up after the break, we'll be diving into Prince Charles's most in ambitious environmental projects to date, the Terracotta. But what does it all mean? Stick around. Welcome back. Uh, most people are familiar with the Magna Carta, the historic tomb that laid the foundations for human rights. But have you heard of the Terracotta? It was a new uh, initiative or charter launched by Charles this week, which seeks to safeguard the planet by putting sustainability at the heart of the private sector. He unveiled all the details at the One Planet Summit in Paris, which took place virtually this year. Um, and it saw him call on firms to sign up to this charter, uh, which kind of offers a roadmap for businesses to become more sustainable. It was launched alongside a fund run by the Natural Capital Investment Alliance, and they're aiming to direct $10 billion towards safeguarding nature over the next decade. Before we get into the details, Maggie, I thought it'd be a good idea to hear from the man himself on what this all means. Time is fast running out and we are rapidly wiping out through mass extinctions. Many of nature's unique treasure trove of species from which we can develop innovative and sustainable products for the future. It is critical that we accelerate and mainstream sustainability into every aspect of our economy. To that end, I am launching the Terra Carta as the basis of a recovery plan for nature, people and planet. The fundamental rights and value of nature lie at the heart of the Terra Carta and represent a step change in our future of industry and future of economy approach. Timelines for change must be brought forward if we are to make a transformative shift by the end of the decade and before it is quite literally too late. Well, I've been through the 17-page climate recovery plan uh, that was released on January the 11th. Um, it's, it's a lot to digest, um, and I'm trying to sort of break it down as easily as possible. But Maggie, this is really a huge step for, for Charles and, and what he considers to be really part of, I guess, the final sort of chapter in his legacy mm. as an environmentalist. You know, this journey began in the 70s. Here we are in 2020. Um, really starting out big yeah it, it's huge and i think what was really striking for me um was sort of the, the phil philosophical angle that he took and um Oman, i i'm gonna come clean with everyone here for a second that 
when I was reading this about the Magna Carta, I was like, oh, shoot, I know the Magna Carta, but like, what exactly was it again? And like, what, what was the deal? And so I had to go Google it. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, all right, Maggie, just admit your ignorance and go solve the situation with some knowledge, you know? What I came across that I loved, what is it said? You know, the Magna Carta was this historic document that's come to symbolize sort of human rights and the rights that humans and democracy should have. And the Terra Carta now wants to be something that symbolizes the rights of nature and the rights that you know, the environment and the world has. And I thought that comparison was so amazing to think about nature and the environment having rights and being taken seriously. And I thought that was sort of a, a, a great way to think of things, something we don't always think about. I think often with environmental projects or climate projects, it almost feels like um, you're doing charity. You're doing, you know, it's like, oh, we'll do some good work for the world. But instead, it could also be thought of as doing the right work, the work that's needed, the work that, you know, it's, it's more than just something that's nice. It's something that sort of an, uh, a, a right that nature actually has. And I never quite thought of it that way before. It's a great way of putting it. And, you know, the Magna Carta really revolutionized most or many of the Western legal systems and Terra Carta obviously is aiming to do the same when it comes to the natural world. Uh, their hopes is really that, that this charter will hold major companies around the world accountable mm -hmm. for their commitment to the environment for years to come. And this includes sort of like a 100 step plan that companies will have to sign towards. Um, and it's sort of asserting that the fundamental rights and values of nature are the prime focus of that company, um, alongside, of course, uh, the focus on the economy. So this $10 billion that's invested goes towards transitioning to clean energy. And it's alongside mm -hmm. that that there are the 100 steps that companies can take to save, I think what they're claiming would be 50% of the biosphere um, by 2050. Mm which is incredibly ambitious, but I think it takes pushes like this and to launch it, of course, during the uh, One Planet Summit in Paris as well, when you already have huge leaders from around the world. And it's sort of that first day itself saw uh, the charter signed by a number of CEOs uh, from around the world committing to making nature the engine of global economies. Um, there's already big names uh, tied into it, HSBC, Heathrow Airport, BP, Bank of America, AstraZeneca, and so on. So really seeing major power players take part in this and, and take it seriously. Well, it's interesting you mentioned some of those names, and they're huge names. They're names that sort of are, are, are people around the world know. They're globally recognized. But um, there's been some criticism that they're also names that have been linked to the fo fossil fuel industry, linked to things that we know have been detrimental to the environment. I mean, mm. BP literally quite is the fossil fuel industry. Yes. Um, but I heard an interesting argument against that, and they said, you know, yes, these organizations clearly have sort of failed the environment in the past, but couldn't it also be an amazing sign that now they're signing on to help and they're investing and they want to turn themselves around in a sense as well. I mean, to a certain extent, we're only going to get to true change if all of the big players are on board and if these big players that have you know, hurt the environment in the past dedicate themselves to changing their ways to now start helping the environment. So. I, I, you know, I'm going to choose to be on the positive side of this, right, and say uh, what a great thing to have these 
major players on board because hopefully this shows they're serious about changing their ways and you know creating a greener future. Mm. Charles made himself very available to a number of uh, media organisations this week to talk more about uh, the to, to talk more about the charter, and I think that was one of the things he addressed. That you know we talk a lot about having to sort of save our planet by 2050, and he says that that's too far away. That really we should be looking at the next decade. That 2030 should be our deadline, and that really sits at the heart of this charter. That's the goal that they're working towards. And this is, of course, all part of his uh, sustainable markets initiative that we spoke about here on the podcast uh, just about this time last year. Uh, he launched that at Davos and he, at the time, called on communities, businesses, investors mm -hmm. and consumers to take urgent and practical steps required to transition towards more sustainable practices. And then in the summer, he launched uh, what was the great, called the Great Resets. I think that was at a virtual roundtable mm -hmm. that uh, aimed to rebuild, redesign and reinvigorate and rebalance our world. Of course, at the time, the conversation was around uh, the world recovering from the coronavirus pandemic. And six months on, we are no better off than we were before. In fact, yeah. many would argue we're a much worse place. And that was one of the questions that was raised to him uh, during an appearance on CNN Business. He was asked uh, if whether he believes that companies will actually even focus on this uh, during a time of, of perhaps arguably something much more important to today, to the world today, which is, of course, the pandemic. And Charles believes that the two go hand in hand. Planetary health and nature's health is intimately, intimately linked to our own health. And the more we destroy nat the natural world around us and biodiversity on which we depend in its infinite variety, and the more we we encourage uh, mass extinctions of species that we don't always realize we depend on because each of us right. is interconnected with the rest of nature, then we are making ourselves ever more vulnerable to all sorts of diseases and, and problems. So this pandemic won't be the, the last one if we're not very careful. So that's why it's critical to heal the natural world as well as ourselves okay. and th th this, this is why we can't ignore it. I know, but I think it, this is such an important point that Charles makes and one that can't be overstated enough. You know, as we're facing and living through this one global crisis, we can't forget about the other global crisis that, as he pointed out, they're linked. Uh, we know that you know, a changing climate leads to so many problems, one of which is you know, animals and humans coming into closer contact and uh, the, 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 the downfall of many of these animals' environments, which is going to lead to more you know, zoonic diseases and pandemics in the future. So it's sort of interesting when you think of it that way. This isn't a time to sit back and say, okay, let's just deal with this one crisis right now. We'll get to that other one in the future. You know, unfortunately, we don't have that luxury. We don't have that time to wait. Um, that future problem is happening now and may lead to more problems like the one that we're currently facing. So I think now is a great time to focus on it, remind people that, you know, this is something that needs to be taken seriously. We cannot wait. And it's actually linked to the problem that we're currently dealing with. And uh, I think the more times you say that, the better, just to drive home that point that, you know, this has real world life altering implications. Mm. I, th I think the question that people are asking now, though, is, is will this actually work? You know, it's, it sounds yeah. great. Uh, the, the, certainly the aim is, is exactly what 
what we need. But although it is written quite similarly to a formal treaty, it's not. Uh, it has carries no legal status. It's not like the Bill of Rights. So there's really no legal obligation here. And so even those that sign it, uh, they're not uh, really able to be held accountable in any way should they break one of those 100 steps outlined in the Charter. Um, you know, I guess in some ways it's almost like a desperate plea to these corporations and, and the fact that they're even taking, paying attention to it, signing to it is an incredible, incredibly positive step forward. But I think on top of that, there will still need to be pressure from leaders and think makers in that space. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Charles uh, will have no problem in calling out those that don't stick to the promise or the pledge that they make when they do sign this charter. Yeah, and, and, and again, Omar, I just have to reiterate too, it's something that's always boggles my mind when we start talking about this. And again, not to you know mention the fact that I just watched all seasons of The Crown because I feel like now I keep referencing this, but for everyone that's like me and just watched it and saw a much younger Charles as he sort of started to create his love for the environment and we saw him you know take a, a big interest in the countryside and that became so important to him. This is something that he has been a champion of for decades. So I just imagine it must be well, one, it's scary for him to know so much about the topic and to know how far we still have to go, but also really rewarding that, you know, he actually is seeing something like the tarot card, something so huge, uh, become real. You know, this is his life's work, and this is a huge achievement, and it'll be really amazing to see how it plays out, you know, especially over the next 10 years as Charles, you know, continues to have this large role in the space, what's going to happen. Yeah, well, we'll hear, I'm sure, a lot more from Prince Charles this year about the Terracotta and the developments within that. If you want to follow it, you can, of course, head over to sustainable-markets.org. Um, and speaking of Clarence House, or that the world in which Charles is in, uh, we've also heard from the Duchess of Cornwall this week. Last week we spoke about her Reading Room launch, which was of course her book club. Uh, it's launched a Twitter account, I think it already has over 30,000 followers, all eager for those first recommendations from the Duchess. And we got them today, four books uh, already out on the shelves, including uh, Dame Hilary Mantle's The Mirror and the Light, um, alongside uh, other thriller books, William Boyd's Restless, uh, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, and The Architect's Apprentice by Elif Shafak. Uh, that latter one I've had on my Amazon wish list for a while, but I haven't got around to reading it, so maybe I'll have <laughs> hint, to. Hint, hint, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's great to see her sort of passion project come to mm -hmm. life. Uh, she shared a video on Instagram at the time talking about how reading to her has always been a great adventure. It's a perfect way to escape, travel, a place you can laugh and a place you can cry. Hmm. I know, we were really excited about this book, and we shared some of our own favourite books last month but Omid I have to say I was a little um well I was a little shocked that one book was missing in this book list <laughs> yes. and I just think we need to talk about it this week we did have book <laughs> news from Sarah Ferguson uh, formerly the Duchess of York uh, she's been signed a huge book deal with the romantic fiction publisher Mills and Boone here in the UK for her uh, debut romance novel Her Heart for a Compass 
the book's out in August. It is, I hear, said to be quite steamy. <laughs> oh, Make do of that tell. what you will. Uh, but it's actually, <laughs> although it's a fictional book, it's the story of a, of a woman called Lady Margaret Montague Douglas Scott, which that is the longest name on <laughs> earth. Uh, they call it an immersive historical saga. But uh, she actually came across this character after researching her own ancestry and became fascinated by this character, Lady Margaret, because Margaret is her middle name. Uh, but the comparisons don't stop there. She also says that she drew on many of her own life's experiences for Lady Margaret's journey, starting with the fact that I think the main character is a redhead also. Um, so <laughs> people are really going to be dissecting this book I think to see what is based on real royal life and what is fictional ah. perhaps a little bit like what we've seen with the crowns especially this this current oh, interesting. season interesting I know it was smart of her she teased that little tease she gave where you know well some of this came or was inspired from my life as well that's all she needed to say to get people really interested <laughs> you know what has lived rent free in my head this week is the oh, teaser trailer for the book, uh, filmed at uh, Fergie or Sarah Ferguson's Windsor home. I don't know who was behind the camera, I don't know who edited it, but it's sort of, I guess, unintentionally slightly like an SNL skit, uh, but it is just my favourite thing. It has really brought smiles on my face this week, so if you haven't seen it's like it... Everyone should go watch it. Yeah. It's on, I think it's on the Mills and Boone Twitter account, but it's uh, it's good fun. And I think she's, she's you know, she's having fun with this. I, I think she's obviously taken the book seriously, but she also knows that romance novels are people's sort of escape, you know. I think Mills and mm -hmm. Boone published something like a hundred romance novels a month. Which is yeah, just... this was new to me. I had never heard of this before, but you were telling me it's like a very popular romance novel brand here in the UK. And once I found that out, I loved the story even more that she partnered with this kind of iconic romance novel publishing house. Um, I'm actually really excited about it. I feel like I, we need to get the book for research right away. Yes, I, I would imagine um. it's filled with bodice ripping and stable <gasps> romping and all the rest <laughs> A girl can dream, Omid. A girl can dream. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to read a passage or two when, when, it, when it hits the show. Oh shelves. my gosh, yes. Okay, here's an idea for everyone. We're going to have a whole podcast dedicated just to like a reading reenactment of the best love scenes <laughs> from the new Sarah Ferguson book. Who's in? I, people would want to do that. We can do it live somehow. We should do a live Instagram of it. I'm wow, in. I, we are just brainstorming all sorts of ideas right now. Everyone else tell us what they want to hear and see <laughs> because otherwise you're going to get more ideas like this. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in. And we would love to hear from you on anything that we've spoken about in this episode or even what you want to hear in future episodes. Uh, just tweet myself at Scoby or Maggie, Maggie Rooley over on Twitter using the hashtag the AirPod and that kind of brings us to the end of the show Maggie well thank you for joining us again this week and uh, thanks to the guys in New York as well for bringing the show together Anthony Ali Leighton Schneider and Michael Dubusky I am forever at your mercy thank you again Maggie it's been a pleasure as always, <laughs> always fun I'm to sure catch up. same See. time same place next week <laughs> possibly the same room I'm in the quietest same room couch. Yeah. of my house that hopefully doesn't echo too much but it is what it is it is what it is we'll see you then guys take care